welcome to At The Source. This episode was recorded in mid-April and features regular Isenwin, better known online as Miss Foodwise. I think it would be fair to call her a curator of food cultures. She's written several books on the subject, has appeared on TV and radio, both here and in her home country of Belgium, and is a long-standing judge for both the World Cheese Awards and the Guild of Fine Foods Great Taste Awards. In short, she has my dream job. Her love of British culture, and specifically our bakes, is no secret. She's loved British food and culture since she was a young girl, and her recently released book, Oats in the North, Wheat from the South, documents the history of British baking, and of course has lots of delicious recipes in it too. This episode is a long one, and we talk about lots of different things, from the importance of the waffle, through to the depths to which she researches historic recipes and stories for her books, memories of nasty ham sandwiches cut into triangles, and more light-hearted things, like the fact that she was gifted the recipe for her wedding cake and the importance of tea and toast in British culture. This is a really great episode and I think that you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I did recording it. Regular, thank you so much for joining me today. I think I'd better stop rambling on and start actually asking you some questions. So we can't avoid the fact that we are currently in a lockdown situation and recording remotely. So where are you and how is lockdown treating you so far? Well, I'm in sunny Belgium. The weather's gorgeous. I think it's the same in Britain, which makes it a whole lot easier, I think, to be in lockdown when the sun's shining through the windows. Um, I'm doing a lot of leisurely baking that hasn't got anything to do with work, which is refreshing because usually I'm always working on some project or another or a book and um, I it's always a bit work and it's becoming more and more often that it's work. So it's nice to just bake whatever I want and experiment. Um, and I'm also working on a new book. So I'm doing writing and I'm doing baking, which is I think perfect. The dream sounds great. So many people are cooking here in the UK. Just my Twitter and Instagram are just full of people baking, making bread. There's been a huge sourdough revival here as well. I don't know if it's the same uh, in Belgium. Yeah, absolutely. Baking in general has been uh, in a revival. Ever since Bake Off started here, um, it's, it's been in a revival. But now, especially, the yeast is sold out, flour is sold out, butter is sold out, eggs are sold out. Everyone's baking. Everyone wants to have a go and see, like, you know, why, why don't we just try it ourselves instead of going to the bakery? And, and, and it's going to be much nicer. The house will smell of bread mm. or cake. It's just the bonus from home baking basically so um yeah definitely i think it's the same everywhere everyone's baking i think you're right so i now have to ask you what is normally our first question for every guest that we have on the podcast so apologies loyal fans that this is the second question um what is your first memory of food So my very first food memory is a very early one from when I was three or four years old. And that's a nectarine in a brown paper bag. Um, We went, always went on walks with the the lady next door who had a son named Sam. And we always walked together and, and went to school together. And I remember this one day we went on a very long walk to a a playground somewhere in, in a, in a park, not well, quite far from our house and we were tired and it was summer 
And I remember that uh, after some playing, uh, my mom, she handed me this nectarine from a brown, brown paper bag. And I just remember smelling the skin of the fruits and, and looking at it. Like, I think it must have been probably the first time I've ever seen a nectarine and looking at it, turning it around. And my mom handed me a, a piece of white kitchen paper to catch the juice that was about to drip from my chin and hands. And I just continued to investigate the skin between my fingers and, and the texture of the fruit and biting into it and feeling that juiciness and the sweetness of that nectarine. And then the bitterness of that magenta red stone in the middle of the fruit. And then trying to get the last bit of flesh from that stone all of those flavors and smells I can so vividly remember even today. And I was just three or four years old. I was just a toddler, but it always stayed with me. And the sad thing is that I feel that I've never, ever tasted that a nectarine that tasted the same as it tasted that first time. That's an incredible first memory of food. <laughs> I'm um, super impressed with your description. It sounded almost poetic. And now I really, really want one. I really want that. It's that thing when you bite into them and they're the perfect ripeness and you do, you get all of that juice and it just goes everywhere. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, I now have to ask you um, for reasons that will become clear with my next question. What is your first memory of British food? Or maybe I should say specifically British bakes. My first actual memory of British food, it's, it's also connected to a bake because it's bread. Um, we're actually quite sad looking, but still very intriguing looking triangle sandwiches on the, on the ferry oh, boat no. to, to Britain. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was a very, very special day because it was the first time that we ever traveled to Britain. So it was the first journey on the ferry boat and I was incre incredibly excited and hungry as well. And I just spotted those triangle sandwiches behind the bar of there was a pub on board and the triangle sandwiches were there. And I was so intrigued by them because mm -hmm. we don't cut sandwiches in triangles in Belgium. So, and they are not neatly packed in those triangle boxes. So I was so intrigued by it and I tried it and it was dreadful and I cried. Oh, I, no. <laughs> I think the ham, I mean, I, I wasn't a meat eater anyway. And I think the ham was, had gone off. It, it tasted mm. a little bit sour and oh, it was no. a, a very horrible experience, but still, I mean, I was so infatuated by the fact that it was triangle. It was so <laughs> such a graphic uh, shape that, um, yeah, that's the first memory. Just, sadly, it's not one with good taste, but it, it, it was was very intriguing. I'm just glad that since then you found a lot of very delicious British foods. So for people who aren't familiar with your story, from a very early age, you were obsessed with Britain and wanting to come here and experience it for yourself. Where do you think that initial obsession came from? So again, a lot of my memories and a lot of the things that have define who I am started when I was this little, like with the nectarine as uh, when I was a toddler. And, uh, 
when in Belgium we have this skipping rope rhyme and it it it's it tells a story about England and it rhymes in Flemish so it won't make any sense when I tell you this in in English but I'm gonna do anyway and it goes white swans black swans who's coming to England with us but England is closed the key is broken is there a blacksmith in town who can mend the key for us and I was so infatuated with that story. I, I could picture this island with with a, a, a like a, a giant gate around it, a big a big padlock, and a key that was broken, and it was guarded by swans. <laughs> I I was intrigued, and in a way, it's also sad now when I tell this story. It, it reminds me a little bit about Brex, Brexit and and trying to you know, create a fence around Britain so none of the immigrants can get in. Um, But, but yeah, get me started. (laughs) Exactly. But back then for me, it was like, oh, this is a magical country. And, and of course you can't just get in there. There has to be this giant gate with this giant padlock, which of course is in the shape of a heart. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I was infatuated. And at that time, Disneyland was just fairly new and everyone wanted to go there. And it was the talk of the town or the talk of the kindergarten anyway. And I was just thinking, why would I go to this Disneyland, which is all fake, if I could go to this real country where there are real castles and real princesses and princes? And um, my parents, they watched a lot of BBC. So, of course, that also influenced me. So I, uh, they were watching documentaries about British heritage. And uh, my mom was watching series you know, with Jane Austen and things like that. So, I mean, uh, it just fortified this idea that in Britain, it was full of culture and full of uh, fairy tales, which it kind of really is. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not a misconception. Britain is a magical country. I would love to hear you say the rhyme in Flemish. Yeah, no problem. Okay, I'll do this. Witte zwanen, zwarte zwanen. Wie gaat er mee naar Engeland varen? Engeland is gesloten. De sleutel is gebroken. Is er dan een blacksmith in het land? Die... <laughs> okay, this is, well, heel fantastic. This is just amazing because I've just mixed <laughs> Flemish and English together. So I have to do it again. This is what always happens if I speak two languages um, together. You know what I mean? So I'm speaking <laughs> Flemish to my husband and English to you. Okay, so I'll do it again. Witte zwanen, zwarte zwanen. Wie gaat er mee naar Engeland varen? Engeland is gesloten. De sleutel is gebroken. Is er dan een smit in het land die de sleutel maken kan? So that's the rhyme in Flemish. I think it sounds better in Flemish. I love it. Yeah, definitely. It rhymes in Flemish, so it makes sense. So how old were you when you first came to the UK? Um, The first trip was when I was eight or nine. And that means that I had to nag for quite a few years to my parents saying like every time they said, oh, what do you want to do for your birthday? I want to go to England. And they just thought that it will pass. It's just this childhood infatuation. They didn't, you know, really think twice about it. But yeah, uh, it just stayed with me and they were like, yeah, if this is the thing that will make her happy, the one thing, she doesn't want to go to any fairground or any way. Uh, she just wants to go to this real England. So they, she, they gave that to me. So we went on a city trip to Canterbury and I can still remember that first ferry ride and the triangle sandwiches, of course. Um, and, but mostly it was a beautiful morning. The 
the, the, the sky was pink and while we were approaching Dover, which you can already see fairly quickly on, the, on a clear day from, from uh, Ostend or from Calais, I could see this yellow ribbon on the horizon, which were the white cliffs of Dover. And I could see them coming closer and closer. And it was the most magical thing ever because if there's one island, which is just incredibly beautiful to take a boat to, it's, it's England. Those cliffs are just magnificent. And I remember that first step onto English soil, I said to my parents, you know what, when I late, when I grow up, I'm going to move here, you know, that, and sadly I never did. But how many times do you think you visited at this point? Oh gosh, I can't really pinpoint it because also I, I work a lot in London because I, I work for uh, the Borough Market magazine. I do a lot of photography for them. So, so I'm over, yeah, now of course not, but I'm over fairly a lot. Um, also when I'm photographing cookbooks and for events and, and cookery demos and stuff. So I'm, I'm over here a lot. So I, I, I wouldn't be able to actually count it. <laughs> many, many, many times. Many times. Yes. So one of the reasons that I was really excited to, to chat to you was, uh, because of your recently released book, which documents the history of British baking. I actually studied history at university myself, and obviously I love food and I love eating cakes and attempting to make them. So for me, I was quite intrigued to know what came first. Was it your love of history or was it your love of baking? It was actually the, the love for history that came first. And that came from um, feeling homesick to Britain. So the times when I couldn't be in, in Britain, I would just study about British history. So I would read books about the kings and queens of England and I would read it like it was a novel. I, I had a portrait of Queen Elizabeth I hanging over my bed like she was Madonna. It, they were all characters in a novel for me. And, uh, that, that was a way, a coping me mechanism for me because actually I really wanted to just be in Britain and I just, I couldn't, of course, only in the holidays. So reading about Britain and, and, and also reading, you know, the classics like Jane Austen, that made me feel closer. So, um, and then on our travels, I must say that I've always been intrigued by, by the food and the baking. I've been a very picky eater when I was a child. It was very hard to get me to eat something. And, um, when, when we were in Britain, it seemed much easier. And, um, I, I was so intrigued by all these small village bakeries, which just had this one window, like a normal, house basically and and you could look inside and see what was on offer and 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 the bakeries in Belgium they were just very large bakeries large bakery windows very modern and in the UK they were so tiny they were almost like the the gingerbread house mm. in Hansel and Gretel's story so tiny and I was intrigued and I, I and I kind of sussed out that every time I would order soup so I would have soup every lunchtime because I love soup and I I also ordered it because everywhere we went throughout Britain when I ordered soup it came with a bread roll and the bread roll was always different wherever mm. we went. This was a time before that pre-baked 
disgusting white baguettes that you never really can yeah. get right, you know. The really hard ones and you can't get the knife in to get the butter in. And then exactly. by the time you get the knife in, it's just weird and hollow. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, or they're not baked enough and they're still super pale and they don't taste of anything. So that was a time before those horrible baguettes and and before all the sourdough and all the fantastic you know baking culture we we, we have now so it, it, I saw that there was a difference and and even then I did my little research and and noted down like okay if we go there I can have this roll and it will have that shape and it will look like that and it always came warm and it always came with these little butters wrapped individually and they would always melt a little bit because the bread would still be a little bit warm and I absolutely adored it uh the smell of the bread the fact that it was still warm and that also drove me to just look at every bakery I could and see if I could see the rolls there if I could see the cakes if I could see the bread and see what the differences were so I was already comparing. I was already doing the research even when I was a child. And the, the saddest thing is that my, my mom and dad, they, they don't have a sweet tooth and we don't have, we never had this, this, um, we never went to a bakery and, and buy some sweet stuff. That's something we just didn't do because we didn't eat a lot of sweet stuff at home. So actually I, I can't remember ever going into one of those bakeries and having the freedom to just choose. That might have even added to the the kind of the magical mysteriousness of them because you saw these as a child through the window, but it wasn't until you were older that you could actually maybe go in and, and try them. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can even remember the first time I was able to actually go to a bakery and actually go in and just buy whatever I wanted. I mean, I can still remember that. It was in Glastonbury. It was on my first solo trip to Britain and I just went to the bakery and I just started just picking whatever I saw that I would want to try and, and went back the next day and chose other bits <laughs> that I wanted to try. And there was just that freedom of just being able to walk in there and just buying something just because, because you wanted to taste it. Yeah. For, for my parents, that sounded a little bit too um, luxurious to just go in and just buy something just because you wanted to taste it. it they always said it's not lunchtime or it's, it's nearly dinner time or you just ate. Mm. So it was never the right time. But Today, we've changed so much. All, all of us have changed so much. You, if you go somewhere and, and you're on holiday, especially, and you see something that you don't have at home, you will just go in and you will buy it. Yeah. Regardless absolutely. of the fact of you're hungry or you've just ate or, yeah. <laughs> you've just described every one of my holidays. <laughs> just moving between the next tasty, tasty discovery and the next. Um, so you... We're already doing the the research, even down to the kind of the, the the types of bread rolls that you were going to get with your soups. But this isn't your first book where you've paired history and a food item. So, at what point did you think, right, these these things go really well together, and I think that I can write about it? Was it something that came gradually, or did you one day just think, this is it, this is what I'm going to do? Well, like I come from a background being a graphic designer, so. It, if you've already designed books for other people, there is always a dream to one day design your own book and write your own book. Um, and in 2013, or was it 2012? No, 2012, I was asked uh, to come up with a book idea by a publisher. 
And I was like, right, fantastic. I know already know what I'm going to do. I'm going to chronicle British food into one book and the history of it. And I started with puddings and that turned into Pride and Pudding because very soon I discovered that you could write an entire book about British puddings. And that just confirmed what I was trying to say to everyone who made fun of me because I was a foodie and I was into Britain. And they all said like, how can you be a foodie and love Britain? The food there is awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I always had to defend it. I started a blog, Miss Foodwise. And on that blog, I tried to show people what British food was mm-hmm. because outside of Britain, there was still this big idea that British food was just greasy stuff. And I knew that was wrong because I've always eaten well and, and so delicious all over Britain. Of course, there's always bad things. That's normal, but I've always eaten great. And I wanted to share that with, with people as well. And even, even today, I mean, someone in, in, in Britain remarked upon me when they found out I was writing about British food and they go like, oh, so that must be a very thin book. (gasps) And someone... Why? Yeah. And that's a British person saying that. And I was like, how can you say that? And I started like, you know, saying you've got this and you've got that Mm -hmm. and you've got that and you've got that. And they were like, oh, but we never really realized that that was unique to Britain. It's like, yes. I think a lot of our regional um, food identity is lost or maybe not as um pronounced as it is say in places like Italy but I think I I mean I'm like you I I love food and I seek it out but I'm from the Midlands and um I lived very close to Melton Mowbray so for example I I grew up you know with the Melton Mowbray pork pie and um red Leicester cheese and things like that so I don't know maybe it depends where in the UK you you are I I don't know (gasps) Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm both surprised and not surprised to hear you say that because perhaps British regional cooking has been lost somewhat over the years, but it is definitely still there if you seek it out. Yeah, definitely. And I also think because I'm an outsider looking in, I can see the differences with, let's say, Belgian food or French food or Italian food much more clearly. I, I can really pinpoint this is really British. Uh, someone remarked uh, to me only this week saying, I had no idea that this all this whole eating toast thing is a uniquely British thing. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm a huge toast eater. (laughs) Yeah. We don't have that. I mean, it's, it's even kids, they get a a slice of toast when they're, when they're small and you get toasts after your, after your operation in, in hospital. Yeah. Uh, Tea and toast. Exactly. And you know, we, we don't have that. We don't have even the whole thing, tea and toast. I mean, whatever you drink with your breakfast, it's not a culture at all is, is you either you drink what you want, but it's, it's not so cultural. And so entwined with your identity as, as tea and toast is in Britain. Fascinating. It is, you're right. As, um, as someone who was born here and raised here and lives here, perhaps I'm not as aware of these things because tea and toast is just standard. Exactly. You know? It's always like, you want some toast? Do you want some tea? You want some yeah. toast? You want some tea? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, I love it. I absolutely adore it. And it is super uniquely British and, and that's why I love it so much. But if you, if you don't realize that, then you, you can't really see your food culture if you haven't ventured out of your country much. And a lot of mm. British people do travel around their own country 
which I don't blame them because it's gorgeous. But maybe that's because, you know, they, 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 they don't venture out that much to other mm. countries that they don't see the differences or the uniqueness of their own culture that easily. Yeah. Here's to more traveling once lockdown is over. Exactly. So your books are kind of half nonfiction, half cookbook. Um, I was quite interested to find out a little bit about the process that goes into writing them. Is there a particular way that you start? Do you start with recipes? Do you start with the um, the history? Do you, I, I just don't even know. Could you, this is a huge question, actually. <laughs> Could you summarize the, the kind of process that you go through? It's not like I can clearly summarize how I work because it, first, it, 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 first there's this massive chaos and everything comes together and, and I start thinking about things and it's, it's like almost making this big painting and, and then trying to create structure in the painting. And the, you already need to know things. You need to know things before you can start looking for them in a way. And the things that you find out on the way there are fantastic discoveries. But you need to know where you're looking first. Uh, otherwise you just, you know, that you don't know where to start. So, uh, for pride and pudding, I, I started very early. I, I, I mean, I was looking at, um, archeo- archeological finds to try and find out what people ate and, 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 and talking to archeologists, like, what do you think was the culture in eating and how did they, prepare food. And because of looking at that, I was able to pinpoint that there is no definite date that puddings, for example, British puddings or puddings in, in, you know, in Europe or in the world, there's no date when they started to be made. Puddings were always there because they were born out of a necessity. There weren't a lot of vessels to cook in. We didn't have pots and pans. They just had the big cauldron. And then they had these small bag-like intestines and they would stuff them with smaller bits of offal or offcuts of meat. And they would mix that with, with grains and with seeds and with all the little things. I think they always put more effort into creating puddings than in any other food in prehistoric uh, Europe. So that's it, it. It it was born out of a necessity, and then you basically when I, what I did was work my way up from you know the very early mentions of food, which were often diaries uh, or. Uh, like a monastic sign language, which told me what the size of bread was in that period. Um, so I went really deep. That's why it took me three years of research to, to actually find out how pudding evolved through history. Um, but while I was doing that was also, of course, looking at the baking because I already knew that because I was writing Pride and Pudding, I knew that there would have to be a book about British baking as well, because that th- those are two stories that are so linked together. And, and there are some puddings which are baked as well, 
So they are entwined, So, but they had to be two different books. So I worked my way up and then it started becoming easier when you've got, you know, the first uh, cookbook text in the English language, which is in 1390, the form of Curie, it's called, which is basically means the way of cooking. And uh, that's, that's the, mo- the, the most important uh, uh, written document because then you really see names of recipes, methods, which were very, you know, confusing because not, not, not everything was written down in historical recipes. Most of them were just like ed memoirs. So people would remember how to make it, but they wouldn't really mention everything in the recipe because a lot of it was considered to be common knowledge of the cook. And then I just worked my way up through the cookbooks of the centuries and trying to find connections between recipes and how they evolved and how they were called and where they where they popped up as well. I did the same with newspaper archives, uh, trying to find mentions of all the bakes in, in the newspaper archives and trying to pinpoint when the first time they were mentioned in, in the news, in, in, in the papers, which gives you a very good idea on how popular a certain bake was. So that's what I did. And again, looking at diaries, um, Peeps in uh, in the 17th century, he mentions a lot of food as well. So that's what I looked at a lot. And and basically every place that you could look, even even postcards, books about uh, about tourism, anything really, anything really that I I could think. So you probably you know in Cumbria you've got Grassmere gingerbreads. So I wanted to find out when did it start? When did Grassmere gingerbread, you know, when, when, when did this lady start baking the gingerbread? And, and you, you can't really find a lot of stuff written down about it. So you start looking everywhere and even, you know, you start looking in travel reports from people who visited the area in that period and the period before to just find out if they mentioned anything about, about gingerbread. And luckily I found one of those mentions. Oh, it's something to be really proud of, I think. Yeah, it's my, it's my, it is really my life. I mean, that's all I do. I'll be, I w- I'll be sitting on a chair and I'll be thinking about something and finding connections. And, and that's just what I do all day long, every day is connecting things, connecting dots in history to, to make sense of things and, yeah, I love it. I mean, that's, I love doing it. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's my life. It's my life's work. <laughs> okay. So in your um, most recent book, do you have a favorite recipe or story or is that just a really awful question yeah. for me to ask? <laughs> no, no, it isn't. I mean, they're all my children, all the recipes, but um, there's so many uh, stories that I love. I mean, I love them all. Um, but some of them have a more historical meaning, other have a more personal meaning. Um, and what for me had a very personal meaning was that because I miss one crucial thing that I would have absolutely loved to have. And that's British family recipes. I don't have those. I don't have this beautiful cookery book from my grandmother or great grandmother. I, I don't have that. I mean, it's, it's something I, I'm missing. I wish I had that. Um, so I would have always loved to have this family Christmas cake recipe that I could make year after year and 
that would have a meaning and that would remind me, remind me of my, my ancestors, of my grandma or my mother, or, but I don't have that. And, and then it suddenly dawned on me, my husband and I, we got married in, in Britain and we had a British cake maker. I'm still in touch with her. And I suddenly thought, why don't I ask her for the recipe of our wedding cake, which was a fruit cake? And I started talking to her and I said, you know, I'm, I'm missing this. And she's like, I know. I mean, I know what, you're, what you've been doing all of these years since your wedding. And, and I realize and I would love to gift you the recipe for the fruitcake from your wedding. And also she told me that it was, in fact, a family recipe that goes back for generations in, in her family. So she gifted me a family recipe which which was inc- an incredible gift. I mean, it's. I think that that was very beautiful. So on a personal level, that is a, definitely a favorite. And there's one more in the book that was gifted to me, which was Auntie Betty's gingerbread. It was gifted to me by a lady who bumped into me on a train and said, oh, I love your book, Pride and Pudding. Can I give you my family recipe for gingerbread? And I was like, yeah, please. Thank you so much. And yeah, she always also allowed me to include it in the book. And and that means a lot. You've inherited two traditional recipes that you can take and have as your own now. Yeah, exactly. And since then they have become my, my family recipe because I've been making them ever since I got the recipe. And and so, yeah, in future generations, it will be a family yeah, recipe. That's lovely. I um I love the fact that you had a fruitcake for your wedding as well, because I always find kind of, I don't have a hugely sweet tooth, although I do enjoy eating cake and all the things that I probably shouldn't eat as much of as I do. Um, but I often find that the kind of traditional wedding cakes can be so overwhelmingly sweet for my palate. And I definitely think that fruitcake would be what I'd go for. Mm, yeah, definitely. And also from a historical perspective, I mean, I really tried to keep the cake, the leftover cake for as long as I could, just yeah, like they do yeah. with Victoria, uh, Victoria's cake and, um, and, and other royal cakes. But uh, unfortunately, it got lost when we moved house last year. Oh, no. Yeah. You do hear this, don't you, when people have got slabs of fruitcake in their um, freezer that's like 20 years old or something and, and they're still good to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. With the amount of booze that goes into them. I mean, the the, the lady who makes uh, who, who made uh, the cake, Becky, who, make, who made uh, my, my wedding cake, she started on our cake three months in advance and she fed the cake booze <laughs> for three months. So, I mean, I, I don't think it would ever go off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, um, we did a podcast with a food historian called Sam Bilton a few months back, uh, probably six months back now. And she was talking about a Christmas um, prune pudding. I think it was prune pudding um, that her gram- was her grandma's recipe. And she said she just did not think that that cake would ever go off because of the amount of booze that was in there. And she was quite confident that you could leave it for probably 10 years. (laughs) Well, I've got a Christmas pudding that's five years old and doesn't look moldy. I keep on feeding it with booze and I've got certain friends who are maybe a little bit eccentric. They, uh, they visit my house and they come especially for the vintage 
Christmas pudding. Would you eat your Christmas pudding with a wedge of cheese? Is that a British thing? Yeah, definitely. We don't have Christmas pudding in Belgium anyway. So uh, we would have ice cream uh, for Christmas uh, pudding. But um, yeah, I, I do love it with a bit of Stilton. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, I, I, I don't really like to have it with anything sweet. Maybe sometimes with some ice cream. Um, I mean, custard, I like on other things, not on Christmas pudding. I think, yeah, the cheese for me is, is, is perfect. Yeah. We're on the same page there for sure. I imagine there are lots of people out there at the moment who are baking for the first time. And and we talked about it a little bit at the start. So uh, some of our listeners might not know that you've actually are a judge on the Flemish version of Great British Bake Off. So what would be your best piece of advice for beginner bakers? My best piece of advice would be to just don't stress. Try to feel it rather than panicking over techniques. I mean, I started just with one recipe for a pound cake when I was a child. My mum didn't really cook or bake, so I didn't have an array of, of cookbooks. I only had this pound cake recipe. And I just tried and created versions of that cake and some worked some didn't they all tasted nice not every not every cake has to look like an instagram perfectness i mean mm-hmm. how daunting is it to live up to some of the perfect pictures on instagram mm-hmm. i mean just incredibly it is and and i would just say i mean you have to enjoy baking because if you're doing it to make a perfect cake and not enjoying it that that's wrong baking should come from the heart so stay calm and think about the most important thing and that is that it will be delicious even if it comes out wonky that's actually i think the first time that anyone's really referenced um the the perfection and the fact that instagram it, it puts so much pressure on people and you're right your cake might be wonky and um, all of my cakes are wonky but as long as it tastes good that's what it's all about and that's why you're doing it i think uh, that's such good advice i love it yeah i think it's important yeah to keep to hang on to that i mean i i remember in the first years of instagram when i posted just a very rustic bake people wouldn't mind they would love it and they would comment and say oh that looks scrumptious that looks great and now i can feel with all the perfect pictures of cake out there that when I post something which is incredibly rustic and imperfect, I get so much less likes than when I post something which is too perfect. And and that really makes me sad mm-hmm. because there must be so many people feeling sad and feeling scared to share a picture of their bake. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm obsessed with Instagram. I use it for my food blog as well as for at the source. And I don't know if some of the changes they've made recently with hiding the number of likes you've got um, are beneficial. I haven't decided, but I think that there is this pressure on people and it, it goes along actually with all of social media, you know, Facebook, people showing only the best aspects of their life and people thinking, Oh, I'll never live. I'll never get to that level or I'll never be good enough. And it's, it's important that people remember why we cook. We cook because it relieves stress and because it's a joy to feed our friends and family and because it's a really relaxing, nice thing to do. And at the end of the day, as long as it tastes good, then isn't that what it's all about? And I think it's important that we remember that. And maybe, you know, during the coronavirus lockdown, people are having a go at these things and maybe 
the the perfect insta wonders will i don't know take a step back <laughs> i don't know really know where i was going with that but um yeah it's it's a shame isn't it because food isn't just about how it looks although that's important it is also mm, about how it yeah, tastes definitely and 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 it's it's you've you've got sometimes these two camps one that says you know it it has to look perfect for it to be good and one that says well if it turns out nice and perfect i'll be happy but how it tastes is more important mm -hmm. we are almost out of time so we're going to finish with a couple of listener questions so the first one comes from sally prosser in dubai and she asks how do you think that classic and regional bakes will fare here in britain um post-Brexit with the influx of cheap baked goods from the USA, do you think it's going to be harder for us to keep traditional recipes alive? I think it will be the other way around. I think when and if there will be lots of cheap imports of cakes or whatever from the US, I think British people will look at their own bakes and see that, that they are better and, 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 more important culturally and to them emotionally as well. I don't think that a cheap cake coming from the US will have actually any influence on classic and regional bakes from Britain. There might be a time when it may be a bit, you know, fashionable with the kids, uh, eating whatever it's called, Twinkies or, you know, that kind of stuff. It might <laughs> yeah. be like a little craze, but I don't think you can push out digestives, a rich tea, a custard cream, a hot cross bun or a Victoria sponge. I don't, I don't think that will ever happen. I think it's connected to who you are in Britain more than in, in, in Belgium, more than it's so important that I don't think some cheap American bake will be able to destroy this amazing and diverse British baking That's culture. That's really nice to hear because I think that, um, so Sally is, is from Britain originally, although she lives in Dubai now. And I think, um, it's been somewhat overshadowed by, coronavirus but there are a lot of us here in the UK who are absolutely devastated <laughs> and pretty unhappy with the route that we're taking with Brexit so hearing that positive um outlook from someone who lives outside of the UK is is really really nice <laughs> really nice and I, I hope that you're right me too my god <laughs> So I have another question from Lydia Downey in Bath, and she asks if there are any specific ingredients that you like to stockpile and take back to Belgium with you whenever you visit. Well, I always arrive in Britain with a half empty suitcase. And if there's times when I'm in the UK every week, I'll basically do my shopping there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I absolutely adore it. Um, but there's a couple of things which I can't get here, which I always stockpile. And that's uh, golden syrup, although that's becoming a little bit more easy. Uh, black treacle, shredded suet, uh, Barry's tea, 
and uh, Peter's Yard crisp bread. Really specific. Oh, I love yeah. Peter's Yard yeah. crackers. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Good it, shout. Yeah. And of course, I also bring uh, Stilton and cheddar. Brilliant. All my favorite things to eat. <laughs> cheese, perfect <laughs> cheese and crackers there. Yep. Oh, and I almost forgot, but I also bring caramels and tea cakes from Tunnock's. Yes. Tunnock's tea cakes from yes. my husband. Amazing. He loves it. They, um, they are such a um, family kind of throwback for me because we always used to have them in our packed lunches. In, our, in the Midlands, we call it our pack-ups. Um, and so my mum would always wrap me my sandwiches, um, sometimes some carrot sticks in foil and then a Tunnock's tea cake. Oh, lovely. Yeah. That was always a good, a good pack up for me when I was at school. So Lydia actually asked a second question as well. Um, and I know this is quite a complex one. So is there any difference between Walloon and Flemish baking? Well, we are two different peoples, of course. We speak a different language. French or Flemish, and we have differences in our culture as well. But if there is one thing that kind of connects our often divided country, it's waffles, because we've got Flemish waffles, we've got Brussels waffles, and we've got waffles of Liège, which is in Wallonia. So in a way, in Belgium, we've got three authorities, and that's the Flemish, the Brussels, and the Wallonia uh, government so to speak waffles are the thing that keeps us all connected to each other and of course there are plenty more waffles than that but those are the mo- the main waffles of belgium and it's it's funny that there are actually three of them and they symbolize our three regions i like the fact that whatever differences there are um historically and today that these three regions are all joined together in the majesty of the waffle because as much as you love all of our british bakes here um you have a big waffle fan over over here where i am so (laughs) um that's a a gorgeous thing to finish on i think so uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been fascinating and I'm fairly sure that we could have kept going for another couple of hours. Um, I have a copy of your new book and I can't wait to start baking from it as soon as I can get my hands on some flour. Um, and I urge all of our listeners to uh, head out and, and buy copies of your books. I will list those in the blog post that links to, to this episode. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It was so nice to uh, meet you and talk to you. 